0: Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, November of 1932, there was an Australian World War I veteran. His name was Arthur Stace, and he had hit rock bottom in his life. He was an alcoholic, a chronic gambler. And his addictions left him homeless and drove him into a state of really suicidal depression. Well, after having failed to find anything that could really satisfy the longing deep down within his soul, he stumbled one Sunday morning into a church, and he heard a preacher talk about a thing called eternity. And throughout the course of his sermon, over and over again, that pastor kept using that word, eternity. And it was a word that Arthur Stace could not get out of his mind. And so as he heard the gospel explained for the very first time, he surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ and the God of eternity invaded his soul. And Arthur Stace devoted the rest of his life to helping people find the one who had found him. And how did he do it? Well, every day for 35 years, he would get up before sunrise. He would spend time in prayer and devotion with God. And then he would head out into the streets of Sydney, Australia with nothing more than just a simple piece of chalk in his hand. And he would write that word eternity everywhere he could. Whether it was on a sidewalk or on a brick wall or in front of a store, department store. And so when the rest of the city went to work or school or they went about their day, all over the city they would find that word written in cursive, eternity, everywhere for years. And no one knew who was responsible for that word or writing that word all over the city of Sydney, Australia. Well, finally, they discovered that it was him, Arthur Stace. And uh, when he died in 1967, at the age of 83, he had left a major, major impact. And if you were to visit his grave today, you would discover that the inscription on his grave marker simply reads, Arthur Malcolm Stace, Mr. Eternity. Now how true it is that we need daily reminders of eternity because everything in this life as it is now is programmed to try to convince us that this life as it is now is all that there is, when we know that that's not the case. Human beings have been hardwired for eternity, and that's evidence that we've been made into the image of God. This is why Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has written eternity into man's heart. There's this sense deep down within us that this life is not all that there is. And so we've been working our way through these final chapters of Revelation and we've really come to consider some subjects that are related to eternity. Issues such as heaven and hell, the afterlife. And there are questions that people have about these issues. Is there life after death? What will heaven be like? Is hell a literal place? And some folks try to force these topics out of their minds because this present life has more than its fair share of troubles. And some people are under the assumption that the thoughts of the afterlife are really impractical as it relates to life in the here and now. And yet the Bible says that thinking about death, thinking about eternal matters, contemplating this subject of eternity, that really is the single most practical activity that a person can do because it impacts everything else that you do in life. The way that we live now is completely controlled by what we believe about eternity. It determines our loves and our motivations in life, our goals in life, and how we direct all of our energies in this life. And so we've come now to Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to discover that here the Apostle John is given a peek into eternity. And these last two chapters of the Bible give us a beautiful portrait of the eternity to come. The subject under our consideration in these chapters is heaven, the eternal state, the eternal home of the people of God. And this glimpse into eternity, really is a remarkable thing. And it's something that will bring great joy uh, and thrill your soul as you meditate upon what the apostle John writes in these chapters. So Revelation chapter 21, I wanna read just the first eight verses. Verse one, the Bible says, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. "'For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Folks, is there any more precious words that you find in Scripture than these words? As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I want to speak from this subject this morning, a peek into eternity, because in a very real sense, that's what we're given here in this passage of Scripture. It's a small peek, but it's a peek into eternity nonetheless. Within this passage, the Apostle John tells us what he learns about heaven as he sees the new heaven and the new earth and the eternity to come that awaits the child of God. And he passes on to us what he learns here in these verses. Now, we're going to work our way through the details of this passage later on, but for now, what I really want to do is just give you a topical introduction to the subject of heaven. What is it we mean when we refer to eternity? What are we talking about when we talk about heaven as the home, the eternal home, for the children of God? Well, a few things to consider. Number one, notice with me how heaven is a prominent subject in the scriptures. It's a very prominent subject in the scriptures. In other words, the the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. Uh, It occupies a very prominent place all throughout God's word. In fact, that word heaven is mentioned nearly 600 times in the Bible. 31 out of 39 books in the Old Testament have something to say about heaven. 21 out of the 27 books of the New Testament have something to say about heaven. And so this is not just a small or minor subject in the Bible, but it's a major, major focal point of the Word of God. Now a couple of things that we need to understand. First of all, we need to understand how the Bible defines heaven. Because there are a lot of ideas about heaven that people have that may not be biblical ideas. Many of our ideas sort of are cut and paste from various religious views, um, variety of different sources like television and movies and conversations that people have with their friends and that kind of thing, so that the result is this highly subjective idea of the afterlife that's totally disconnected from what the Bible actually says. You know, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter three to set our minds upon heavenly realities. And yet, how can we do that if we don't know what the Bible actually has to say about this subject called heaven? I think it's a sad thing that really the only time we talk about heaven in the church is when we come to a funeral. No, rather than it being something that we only talk about when we lose those that we love, heaven ought to be something that we consider because this is a prominent subject throughout the Word of God. You know, one of the best-selling evangelical books of all time was written, it came out back in 2010, entitled, Heaven is for Real. And it was written by a man who told the story of his four-year-old son, whom he says died during emergency surgery and claims to have made a trip to heaven. And so really the the book is all about uh, what this little four-year-old claims to have experienced when he was on that operation table. It sold more than 11 million copies within the first three years of its release, which tells me something. Tells me that a lot of people are curious when it comes to the afterlife. People have a lot of questions when it comes to this subject of heaven. That's not to be confused with another book entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. This was another bestseller written by a guy named Kevin Malarkey. And his last name ought to give you a clue as to what (laughs) this book is really about. But he makes the claim that his son made multiple trips to heaven after a devastating car accident. And much of the claims that he, you know, says that he saw doesn't necessarily jive with what the Bible teaches. And so I'm saying all of that to just simply say this, we, we had better be careful and use discernment when it comes to the heavenly tourism literature that's out there flooding the market. Because our source of authority for the people of God, when it comes to the subject of heaven, is the Bible itself. We need to know what the Bible says. And, and I'm not denying that some have had remarkable near-death experiences in which the unexplainable has taken place. Some of you may know someone who've had a similar thing happen to them or someone that they love, and and I'm not denying all of that, but I am simply saying, what, what are we to believe about such claims? We need to hold such claims and take them with a grain of salt and really weigh them against what the scripture actually has to say. We need to be people of the book. And the book I'm talking about is God's book, the Bible. And the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. In fact, it uses a couple of different words to define heaven, words that are translated as heaven in our English translations. Uh, There's a Hebrew word that's plural, which means the heights. Often when you come across that word heaven in the Old Testament, it's translating this Hebrew word shamayim, which is a plural word meaning heights. It has a Greek equivalent in the New Testament and the word is oranos, which basically means the same thing, lofty place, something that's raised up. And so the language that scripture uses to define heaven is that of a place that's high and lofty. Lift it up. And then there are countless descriptive terms that are used all throughout the pages of God's Word to help define what heaven is. I think about what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 23 when he said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or what Jesus said to the dying thief in Luke chapter 23 when he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or Hebrews 11 refers to heaven as the city which has foundations, or the new Jerusalem as it's described here in these verses that we've read here in Revelation chapter 21. So the Bible defines heaven, and yet you consider also what's stamped upon the human conscience. And there's this idea that there's this sense that we're going to live everywhere, somewhere, And that that idea has really shaped every civilization throughout human history, be it primitive civilization, be it it sophisticated civilization. Every culture has this God-given innate sense of the eternal that this world is not all that there is. And yet we need the biblical revelation to tell us what that truly is and what it looks like. So the Bible defines heaven for us, but then notice another thing, Notice how the Bible describes heaven. What it reveals is true, and yet what it reveals is not exhaustive. One person has said that God has given us a sketch of our future home. And yet that word heaven is used at least three different ways throughout the Bible. The first way that we see this word heaven used Uh, It's used to describe what some have referred to as the atmospheric heaven or the atmosphere which surrounds the earth, the sky, or the heavens with its clouds, birds, oxygen. It's used this way in Isaiah chapter 55, where the prophet writes, for as the rain comes down and the snow out of heaven. So the idea where this particular word is used in this sense, heaven is the atmosphere, that yields its precipitation to the earth. You've just stopped to consider just the amazing reality of our planet and the atmosphere that surrounds our planet. We live on an amazing planet that did not just evolve, but was uniquely designed by the creator himself. And I believe that the atmosphere that surrounds the earth is evidence of this design. Now, there are traces of the Earth's atmosphere that go 300 miles out into space, but did you know that it's really only just a 10-mile layer of atmosphere that's conducive for life, sustains life? Now, some of you drove a greater distance than 10 miles to come to church this morning, but if you were to go 10 miles straight up, you couldn't live. And yet, this atmosphere that surrounds our planet is remarkable sustains life. No other known planet in the universe has an atmosphere like ours. And so this is the atmospheric heaven, and oftentimes you see that word heaven used to describe the atmosphere. Now, in addition to that, there's a second way the word heaven is used throughout the scriptures, and it describes the vastness of the universe or the interstellar heaven. The heavens in the sense that uh, there are billions of stars and billions of galaxies This is the way the word heavens is used in the creation account in Genesis chapter one, where the scripture says that our God made the stars also and God set those stars in the firmament of the heavens. It's referring to the interstellar heavens. The psalmist used the word in this same sense in Psalm 19, when he said that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky shows his handiwork. You ever just stared up into the night sky and just been absolutely amazed by all of the countless. Now listen, sometimes living in the city there's a lot of light pollution, but you get out of the city and you get out into the country in a rural area and you look up into the night sky, it will take your breath away as you look into the interstellar heavens. So there's the atmospheric heavens, the interstellar heavens. There's a third descriptive way that this word heaven is used in the Bible and it refers to the supernatural heaven or what some refer to as the intermediate heaven. This is the place of God's throne. And this is what we're referring to when we talk about heaven as a place. And so this helps you understand what the Apostle Paul is writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about being caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about being given a glimpse of glory, Uh, he receives a peek into eternity, much in the same way that the apostle John is given a peek into eternity. And he writes about it in a very descriptive way here in Revelation chapter 21. And so the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. It's a very prominent, prominent subject all throughout the scriptures. Now, I want you to notice the second thing. Not only is heaven really a prominent subject in scripture, but heaven is a very practical subject to be studied. One of the things that should stand out to you as you read Revelation is the use of sensory language by the apostle John. In fact, if you look at this passage here, you'll notice that he's using sensory language. In verse one, notice he begins by saying, then I saw a new heaven. Verse two, and I saw the holy city. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. And so he's constantly using this sensory language to describe uh, the heavenly realities that are being revealed to him. More than 70 times in Revelation, he uses these phrases. I saw, I heard, I looked. And so the idea is he was not a casual observer, but a careful student of eternal truth. He's carefully studying what God was revealing to him. And so that language is a reminder to us that heaven is not an abstract concept, but a very real destination. We're not talking about these abstract uh, ideas that we can't really identify with. No, heaven is a very real place. Heaven is the eternal destination for the child of God. My citizenship is in heaven. If you're a believer in Christ, your citizenship is there in heaven. And Jesus wasn't talking about something abstract when he told his disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He's talking about a very real place. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And the word that he uses there, translated as place, it's the Greek word tapas. It's the same word we get the word topography from. You know what topography involves, don't you? Mapping a geographic location. That's the idea here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a very real place for those who are my people. So we're not dealing with these abstract ideas, but no, something tangible, something real, something that's concrete. One of the ways I think that the enemy has sort of short-circuited our discipleship when it you know, involves these matters is that he wants us to be confused about heaven. He wants us to become so weighed down in the stuff of now, bogged down in the here and now, and add confusion to this subject of eternity so that we don't really identify with our heavenly home. He wants it to be abstract in your mind so that you won't study this subject, so that your mind won't be fixed on heavenly realities. I know you've heard this statement, the cliche that warns us against being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Listen, I've discovered it's the opposite, which is most often the case. The problem with most Christians is not that they think about heaven too much, but that they think about it too little. C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. Or those English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. They all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So the idea is we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good because the more heavenly minded you are as a Christian man or woman, the more earthly good you'll be about. But let me tell you something, you can be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. So this is a very practical subject that we need to study. The Apostle Paul says this in Colossians chapter three, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things that are above. Set your affections on things that are above, not on things here on the earth. And the word that he uses there, set your minds, it's a word that describes diligent, active, single-minded investigation. It's the same word that's used to describe how the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus used this same word in Matthew chapter 18 verse 12 to describe the way that a shepherd looks for a lost sheep. He doesn't flippantly go about his search, no. He, He he looks everywhere. He diligently searches. And so that's the idea. We're to diligently set our mind on these eternal truths. So the Bible is saying diligently, actively, single-mindedly pursue the things of heaven. Actively live in the present with your heart firmly fixed on your future hope. And in that passage in Colossians 3, Paul is using a present tense imperative. Which means we're commanded to keep on seeking those things which are above. Don't be content with just a simple sermon on the subject or a book or reading a social media post about it. No, be intentional each and every day of your life to keep heaven at the front and center of your thinking and your daily living. And if you do this, it will yield some very tangible benefits in your life. You say, all right, well, what are those benefits? Well, think about it. The first benefit is that it will remind you of the brevity of your life here on earth. Well, life is so very short, isn't it? Eternity is long, life is so very short, and we don't tend to think about that when we're young, but the older we get, the more we realize just how short life really is. And so a person's not really prepared to live until they're prepared to die. Let me ask you the question, very personal question. Are you prepared to die? Have you considered your own mortality? Even though we live in a world that's trying to hide this from us, and the enemy wants to blind us from this truth. I read this week where worldwide three people die every second. That's 180 people every minute. 11,000 people die every hour. That means each and every single day more than a quarter million people will die and step out into eternity, the vast majority of them without Christ. No wonder James tells us in the New Testament, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. My life Here on earth, it's it's like the morning fog that's here, thick, one moment, but just as soon as the sun rises, it's gone. It's, it's, It's gone from view. That's how brief my life in this world truly is. No wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 39, Lord, make me to know my end and the measure of my days. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So... One practical benefit of studying this subject of heaven is that it will remind you just how brief your life truly is. A second benefit is that it will prepare you for the certainty of judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. We just looked at the passage, the preceding passage in Revelation 20 that deals with the future judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne. And yet, there's also the judgment seat of Christ that applies to every Christian, where our service and our works and the things that we've done in Jesus' name are all going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And when you focus on eternity, that will prepare you for the certainty of that judgment which is just up ahead. A third benefit is that this truth will motivate you to live a pure and holy life. Because apart from a healthy view of eternity, we we become so mired down in the here and now. And we can live short-sighted lives, living only for the moment, interested only in self-gratification. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to look at that passage in Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says, set your mind on things above... Long about verse five, he gets very practical and here's, here's what he says. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And then he just describes what godly character ought to look like in my life and your life as a Christian. And so a good sign that heaven is on your mind will be this certain character that you possess. The heavenly minded man or woman doesn't live for instant gratification because they know they can do without something out of the hope of what lies ahead. And that's a benefit that focusing on eternal truth will do for you as a Christian. A fourth practical benefit is that it puts your suffering in its proper perspective. We seldom receive answers to those why questions of life. The questions that we all have about certain things that we've experienced or certain things that the people we love have had to go through. Can you imagine how reassuring this heavenly vision must have been to the Apostle John? Consider where he was when he is given this peak into eternity. He's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, all for the sake of being a follower of Jesus. He's a man who knows something about suffering. He's a man who knows something about pain. And so whenever we feel the pain of personal tragedy, when we feel the pain of loss, when we're the recipient of cruel mistreatment at the hands of other people. Listen, when we experience things that we can't explain, it's then and there that we need something solid to put our hope in. And that's why Paul could say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we don't lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day He says, because this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, he's saying, when I I consider what I've experienced by way of suffering and pain in this life, it's light compared to the weight of eternal glory that's mine in Jesus Christ. So the brevity of life, the certainty of judgment, purity of devotion... Clarity of perspective. All of these are practical benefits that you're afforded as a believer who carefully studies this subject of heaven. Now, one final thing that I'll mention before we close is this. Heaven is a precious subject for our faith. Prominent subject throughout the scriptures. Practical subject that we ought to carefully study. And we ought to carefully study it because it is a precious, precious subject for our faith. Especially when you consider the words that the Apostle John has written here. When he sees the holy city coming down from heaven from God. And then in verse three he describes how the presence of God is going to be with his redeemed people. He hears a loud voice from the throne saying, behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He's going to dwell with them and they'll be his people. God himself will be their God. I can't think of anything more precious to the child of God Or what about the provision of God for His people? In verse number four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have all passed away. No more death, no more sorrow, no more pain of separation, no more disappointment, no more sadness, no more tears. This is the provision of God for his redeemed people. And then the promise of God to his people. Verse five, he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write it down because these words are trustworthy and true. And so oftentimes we want explanations for the pain of life and the questions of life. God doesn't give his people explanations, but he does give us precious promises. And it's those precious promises that we believe. And this fuels our faith. And so heaven is a precious subject for our faith. What does it do for your faith? Listen, it warms your heart whenever you're discouraged. When we feel the weight of discouragement, living in a fallen world, this is why Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, be of good cheer. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And so it's this wonderful truth of heaven. It's so precious to our faith because it warms our heart whenever we're discouraged. And then notice something else. It comforts our spirits when we're distressed. Whenever you're stressed out in life, when the pressures of life build and seem to carry you to your breaking point. When fear taps you on the shoulder and sends shivers up and down your spine, it's this truth of your eternal home in heaven that provides you with comfort as a believer. And God intends for these promises to give you comfort and strength when you find yourself weary. And listen, some of you, you're there right now. And so this ought to be a sweet balm for your soul. And Jesus said as much in John 14 when he said, let not your heart be troubled. So it warms my heart whenever I'm discouraged. It comforts my spirit whenever I'm distressed. And then notice something else. It's so precious to my faith, this truth of heaven, because it fuels my imagination when I'm distracted. The average man or woman doesn't think much about heaven because they're distracted. Or they've been under this impression that heaven is sort of this ephemeral state of existence that's less than physical. And something they can't identify with. And they've bought into this unbiblical idea that heaven is a cloud and a harp and an unending church service. And so if they just be honest, they're bored with the thought of heaven. And yet what the Bible actually teaches about the subject is so very wonderful. You'd be surprised to learn all that the Bible has to say about our eternal home in heaven. It's not a figment of the imagination. It's not a state of mind or simply a feeling. This is not the invention of man. No, heaven is a very real place, a place that's prepared for a people who've been prepared, redeemed and purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen, the new heaven and the new earth, this is the place of our future and eternal home. That's what John is given a glimpse of here as he's given this peek into eternity that he tells us about in these final two chapters of the Bible. Randy Alcorn, who's written a wonderful book on heaven, a doctrinal book, but he says that in order to get a picture of heaven, which will one day be centered in the new heaven and the new earth, he says, you don't need to look up at the clouds, but just simply look around you and imagine what all this would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. Because what God has in store for us will be greater than anything that we've ever seen before. And it's something that fuels my imagination. You know, God gave you an imagination for a reason. Now don't get carried away and let your imagination run wild, but let the truth of what the Bible says about heaven fuel your imagination. And guess what you'll do? You'll discover that it will absolutely warm your affections for this place where your citizenship resides as a child of God. Imagine what it's going to be like when you take your first breath in Emmanuel's land one day. Imagine what it's going to be like when you taste a perfect piece of fruit or when you sit down before a table that's been spread with every kind of exquisite delight you can possibly imagine. Imagine the smiling face of a child <laughs> or a loved one, a father, a mother who's gone on before you, one whose face is undiminished by years or saddened by tears because Jesus will have wiped away all of those tears from their eyes. The last glimpse you got of your dad or your mom, cancer had eaten away at their body, that's not going to be the next picture you're going to have of your mom and your dad in Emmanuel's land. And then imagine the glimpse that you get of Jesus when he embraces you and welcomes you home. No wonder the Lord says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Folks, just imagine what it's gonna be like when our Lord makes all things new. Would you stand with me for prayer? You know, the thing is, Not everyone who's going to heaven or or talking about heaven is actually going to heaven. Because in order to go to heaven, you've got to have a reservation. But the good news is, you can have a reservation. And the only way to have a reservation is to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for your sin on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. And those who have reservations in heaven are those who've been born again. Is that you? If not, then listen, don't walk out these doors this morning without getting this issue of eternity settled. And if you're a believer and you found yourself discouraged with life lately, why don't you just imagine? Imagine the joy that's yours through all that Jesus has provided. Lord, thank you for your word. God, may you take this truth of heaven. May it fuel our imagination. Comfort us, Lord, when we're distressed in life. Warm our heart when we're discouraged as your people. There's a bright and wonderful future ahead for the children of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.